Well, what a delight to be with you, and what a... I wish every church I went to got their children up front before I had a chance to speak. I mean, that's just a sermon right there. I could just pack up and go home, and that'd be okay. A sermon in a nutshell. You want a a one-sentence sermon, I'll give you the rest, but a sermon in a nutshell. God tells us to tell the next generation the praises of the Lord, even the ones who haven't been born yet. And our task... Our task is obviously to share with our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members who are alive today the gospel, but we have another task, sermon in a nutshell, this is where we're going today, our other task is to make sure that we know how we are telling the next generation, even the ones who've not been born yet, the praises of the Lord. And what can we do today to ensure that our churches, our ministries that God has called us to, that we love and have invested our lives in, will continue beyond our lifetimes and tell the next generation, even those who've not yet been born, what God has done. Uh, So if you don't hear anything else I've said today, you've heard the sermon right there. And uh, don't fall asleep on me, I promise, but uh, but we'll we'll give you that little nutshell. It's just been a great weekend. We had a wonderful time yesterday morning uh, talking about what it means to finish well to have kind of our affairs in order, but we talked not only about the legal stuff and the money stuff and the medical stuff, we talked about our spiritual legacies and what does it mean to communicate to our children and our grandchildren those important moments and and individuals and places and scriptures and hymns that God has used to speak into our lives. And we have a tool up back at my table that you're welcome to help yourself to that helps you craft a spiritual legacy to leave those things behind for your children and uh, and for your grandchildren. And so we just invite you to take that and to share that. And then we did another workshop at 11 yesterday and we talked about planting shade trees. And uh, specifically what we talked about were some things that we can do today with our plans and with the things that God has blessed us with in order to not just care for ourselves and care for our families, but to find ways to invest in the church and the ministries that we love uh, to help ensure that those churches will be able to provide ministry to people whose names we will never know and whose faces we would not recognize. And we just had a wonderful time. There's plenty of resources up back that I just invite you to help yourself to as, as you leave today. We have a newsletter that you're welcome Welcome to sign up for. It's free. It comes by email or through the mail. And uh, so if you're interested in those sorts of resources, just see me at the table up back. But I really love visiting our churches of the Nazarene because there's a sense of family and connectedness. Uh, Brother Bill prayed for our missionaries this morning, and he prayed for water in Africa, and he prayed for uh, prayed for crisis care kits. And I've heard you talk about alabaster and sponsoring children, and I saw in your bulletin the, the number of things that you have done to to be connected around the world and to come and be with you and to share in that story. You know, it's easy for us to come to church every week and go home every week and think, well, this is the church. But by being here today and, and, and by calling yourself part of the Springville Church of the Nazarene, you are, you are part of a family that extends around the globe. And you have missionaries that are serving in countries this morning. They're your missionaries. And you have sister churches, not just here in California, but sister churches all over the world that are sharing the same gospel, the same holiness message, the same scripture, and the same heritage of faithfulness. And it is just wonderful to be connected 
united in that way, part of this global family that is doing God's work all over the world. And so before I get into our message this morning, uh, I'd like to say what I've come to believe are the two most important words I get to say when I travel. And I want you to hear these words from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you for what you do right here in Springville and your outreach and your ministry and your prayers and your love for your pastor and his family and the way in which you generously care for other Christians, brothers and sisters around the world. And just on behalf of our missionaries and children whose names you won't know and whose faces you wouldn't recognize and our colleges and our seminaries and pastors who are being trained to preach the word, thank you. On behalf of those whose lives are being transformed through the gospel of Christ, thank you. You see, in part... It's your faithfulness and worship and your evangelism in your neighborhoods and your prayer and your, your faithful giving and sacrificial giving and generosity and you know the offerings that you share each week. Pastor shared with me that somewhere around 18 to 19% of every dollar that comes in the offering plate ends up going out around the world to accomplish God's mission in other places. You are a generous, generous church. And thank you because those are your ministries as well. And thank you for the work that you are doing around the world to share the gospel. Well, I want to give you just a quick snapshot of that. Uh, Just a year ago, we commissioned in the Church of the Nazarene, we commissioned 15, that's one five, 15 new missionaries serving in Africa, Central America, and South America. Now, we only retired, I think we retired three missionaries, so that's a pretty good net gain right there of adding missionaries to the field. These are your missionaries that you get to pray for and support and care for. We officially entered three new world areas. Your missionaries are planting churches around the world. And just this last year, we entered Mongolia, Singapore, and Curaçao, which brings us to 162 world areas in which your missionaries and your churches are continuing to proclaim what Jesus did and to change lives and transform lives because of his death and resurrection. A few months ago, I was in Lenexa, Kansas, uh, where our what we call our global ministry center is. It's sort of our administrative building for the denomination, and a lot of work happens there. And I don't live or work there, but I, I go there from time to time, and I had a chance to meet with some of the staff at Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. And it was a few months ago, and if you think back in the news, you remember a few months ago, we were in the middle of hurricane season. And I just want to tell you that they were working hard to get those crisis care kits that you put together and that other churches had put together in places like Texas and Florida and Puerto Rico and Mexico to help provide the basic needs of people, giving us an opportunity to share with them Jesus' love. And they were doing the work that you had provided the generosity for, the tools for, to get those tools where they needed to go. I'll tell you, the warehouses have been empty. And uh, there's been a great appeal asking people to do what they're doing. And so thank you for your your little Kleenex packs you're bringing in this month. I know it may not seem like much, but when it's all piled together, it makes for a great deal and an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of people. It's so easy to turn on the news or the radio or open up the morning newspaper and hear news that is full of doom and gloom. We could hang our heads and shake our hands and kind of be in despair of the state of the world around us. But friends, I want to tell you, 
God is still on the throne. Jesus is alive and the kingdom of God is being built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And while it may seem as though there are times when it's dark outside, light always chases away the darkness and God always wins. You know, God's kingdom is not just being built in other countries. I believe God is doing great things in our midst right here at home too. He's preparing His people for what's to come next and preparing His people with passion and vision to dream and live beyond themselves. And even as I've heard some of the story of this particular church... You're a miracle. I've been told over and over again that the fact that we're sitting here this morning is miraculous evidence of God's intervention. And God has a plan for the people who come and participate in the kingdom of God here in Springville. And I can't tell you what that plan looks like. I don't know. I know you're, you're still praying about it. And I know you're wearing green dots on your phones and your cell phones. I've seen lots and lots of them for people who've committed to pray for their church every day that God would grant vision and direction and provide the resources to see what's to come next. See, I believe God wants to do great things right here as well. And thank you for your partnership in that. Well, I travel a lot. And uh, you don't know a lot about me right now. But I often get asked where I'm from, and uh, you know it's kind of a complicated question when somebody says where you're from. Now, where did I set that little clicker? Oh, it's on the side. Okay, all right. We got it right there. Good. I'm going to need that later. Uh, Some of you asked me this morning where I'm from. They're like, "Are you from Porterville? Are you from Kansas? Are you you, where are you from?" Well, I live down in Southern California, about 45 minutes north of San Diego right now. Uh, My job responsibility is to travel California, Arizona, New Mexico, full time, serving our denomination in this role, and to preach and to teach and provide workshops like we did yesterday. But you know, asking somebody where they're from. It's a big loaded question, isn't it? I mean, some of you know because you're from all sorts of places. I mean, some of you have lived here for generations and your daddy cut sequoias, uh, your great-granddaddy cut sequoias up in the forest and you've just lived here for generations. But some of us aren't. We're from all over the place. And, uh, so I'm from somewhere very different from Southern California. I have spent most of the last 40 years about, about 3,200 miles away in the great state of Maine. Most of the last 40 years, because that's where I was born and raised and uh, where I went back for pastoral ministry. The last 14 years, I served a small church on the coast of Maine. But at the end of 2015, my wife and I downsized all of our belongings, loaded them into trucks, and headed out on this 3,200-mile-long adventure across the country uh, to go on a great adventure to serve the church. Now, if I can avoid meddling this morning... Let me just say that every adult needs to go through that once or twice in their lives. I don't mean the moving part. I don't care. You don't have to change your address. You don't have to move one mile. But if it's been a while since you've been through the attic and the garage and the storage shed and the closet, see, I told you I was going to meddle, you know, it's going to help you reevaluate your stuff and your collections and the things that you've kind of accumulated It's also going to help you reshape your priorities and the ways you care for the funds that God has blessed you with. And obviously, of course, it's going to save your children and great-grandchildren a great deal of work someday. But where am I from? 
Well, it's not just about geography, is it, either? Because where we're from means so much more than just places. There's so many factors that help define us that thinking about where we're from forces us to consider all of the things that have shaped us and influenced us and made us into the people we are. I mentioned I previously served as a pastor of a small church on the coast of Maine. And it was a, it was a pretty small church, sometimes 20 to 30 people, sometimes 40 to 50 people. And I was bivocational for seven of those years, meaning that I had to work outside the church in sort of a tent-making ministry role. But I served as a funeral home chaplain. And it doesn't sound like particularly glorious work. It's not. It's particularly difficult work at times. And over those seven years, I served nearly 400 families, meeting with them and walking with them through their grief and providing some care and counseling and putting together a funeral service, often for people I'd never met. And I learned pretty early on that if I was going to do this sort of service for people, I needed to ask lots and lots of questions and listen really well to the answers. So we'd get the family together, and I'd sit and kind of get them to start talking about mom or dad or their grandparent. I'd ask about their hobbies and personality and their favorite memories and what they did for work. But one of the most important questions I would come to ask by the time I got through that meeting was to say, what was their legacy? What were they known for? What was important to them? What were the values that they wanted to pass down to their children or their grandchildren? And it was then that I would really learn about the character of this person. What was most important to them? Maybe it was hard work or family gatherings or generosity or community service. I hoped that I would hear stories of their faith and the ways in which they served the Lord. And the answer to the question, where are we from, is so much more than geography but it has everything to do with legacy. So, for instance, here's a picture taken at Christmas time in 1941. And in this picture are four generations of Twitchells. All the way over on the right is my father, Roger, the baby. And uh, he's being held by my grandfather, Albert. The man who looks like he's standing down on porch steps in front of them, he's my great-grandfather, Leon, and the man all the way over on the left of the photo is my great-great-grandfather, Elmer. Four, four generations of Twitchells, uh, who I think have probably shaped who I am, part of the legacy that I've inherited. I want to talk about my great-grandfather for just a moment, the one who looks like he's standing on a porch step in front of the rest of the men. He's not. I'll show you another picture of Leon that will help explain. Here Leon is farming on his hands and knees. See, Leon was afflicted with polio in 1924, and he spent most of his life as a hard-working family farmer, doing most of his work just as you see him in this photo. Here he is digging a hole for a fence post, but people tell stories of him going in the hen house to gather eggs or doing the work of planting potatoes. He had these thick leather pads that he had handcrafted to wear on his knees so that he could do the work. In a world where there weren't lots of safety nets or medical advances to help people, he simply continued to do the hard work of a Maine farmer to care for his family. It's a legacy of hard work, of not giving up, of frugality, that I hope has shaped who I am. 
Well, if I go a generation down, we find my grandfather, Albert. They called him Trader Twitchell because he liked to make trades and bargains, okay? Um, It it was just kind of who he was. He opened a tractor supply shop, and uh, even though he continued that family farm, he began to service farmers throughout the area with tractors and farm equipment and ran a, a... repair department for all of those things that he sold. He was very shrewd and very business savvy. But he was also very generous. Would do whatever he could to make a deal for somebody and help them out and take care of them, both with his resources and his time. My father, he put himself through college, working summers at that tractor repair shop and in the tractor store. But he went to school for engineering and physics and went on to be a high school physics teacher by day. But in the summers and on the weekends, he continued the family farm. Here he is driving an old beat-up International Harvester 330, pulling one of those small balers uh, to make hay for the cows and the horses and the other animals and livestock that we raised. He taught Sunday school for years, and even today he continues to serve his church as the church treasurer. You know, each of those guys is kind of a part of me. Uh, You've heard me talk about frugality and business sense and finances and teaching. and uh, Not so much the farming part. I never really got the farming gene. I don't know about that. But you might wonder then, how in the world did a simple guy from a family of Maine farmers end up as a Nazarene pastor in Southern California, traveling around working for our Nazarene foundation? Well, let's start with the pastor piece. I don't really think that these things are passed down by genetics, and yet the experiences we have shape us. And if you go on the other side of my family, you find Zilpha and Merton Snow. There we go. Zilpha and Merton Snow. Merton, my great-grandfather was an Advent Christian minister who served throughout New England and parts of Canada, traveling and preaching and teaching. I don't think our legacy comes from genetics, but there are those key places and people who influence our lives, the experiences. We might think of places too, right? Those holy ground places where God spoke to us. We might think of our churches. I grew up attending this Baptist Church in South Paris, Maine, built in 1885. This is, by the way, this is what a New England church looks like. I know some of you have never been to New England, but this is what churches look like out there. Kind of added on to in several phases and great steep roofs so the snow slides right off them. Uh, It was not a big church, certainly by today's standards. But this was the church that as a five-year-old boy, I heard that God loved me, that Jesus gave his life to save me from my sins. And it was in this church that I gave my life to Christ. We had Vacation Bible School. You remember Vacation Bible School? We would sponsor and invite missionaries to come and teach us. And I was so glad to find this picture of Hank and Joyce Hemond. They were the missionaries that came that year. Uh, On the left-hand side is sort of an older picture of them, but on the right is how I remember them. They've got puppets with them. One's a leopard by the name of Oliver. And the other one, the giraffe, his name was Stretch. Good name for a giraffe, right? But Stretch and Oliver, they would teach us the Bible stories every day. And it was them. I know, not really the puppets. But they're part of my legacy. Part of my story. Part of the people who made a difference in my life. Part of my stories at summer camps, you know, summer camps are a great way for young people to get away from the hubbub and the noise and the technology and all of the distractions in life so they can get away to hear God's voice. And it was at summer camps where God called me to ministry. 
It was at a summer camp where God began His work of entire sanctification in my life. It was at a summer camp where God began to breathe a calling into me to serve Him and to give my life toward Him. You've heard about my Baptist church and missionaries, a couple of summer camps, my Advent Christian great-grandfather, so now you're like, okay... Well, how's the Church of the Nazarene come into this whole story? I know that's part of some of your story, too. There's a wide variety of backgrounds represented here in this room, and somewhere you all came together under this particular roof. Each of us has a story. Well, mine comes through this place called Eastern Nazarene College, right on the south side of Boston, Quincy, Massachusetts. Among all the choices I had available to me to pursue ministry in a ministry degree, I went and visited several Christian colleges. But this one... It gave me nearly twice as much scholarship aid as the other private Christian schools that I looked at. You know why? Do you know how? Because of good and faithful, generous Christians and Nazarenes just like you who invested in Christian higher education, who participated in supporting their school. You've got a great school down in San Diego called Point Loma Nazarene University. They're part of you. It's your school. Just like the missionaries on the other side of the world are your missionaries. They're your school. And a great way for you to participate and to drain up the next generation. So thank you. I know you didn't necessarily give to the school I went to. But thank you for your partnership and your participation. I think about it. My home church, the Hemans, the campgrounds, the college. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to build those things or make those things happen. Those things all existed because of the blood, sweat, and tears of people whose names I would never know and whose faces I would not recognize. People who invested years before I was even a glimmer in my parents' eye, who invested in the future of ministry and created churches and campgrounds and colleges, believing that God had a preferred future for them and for their children. So let me ask you this. Where are you from? What is the legacy that you have inherited? And where did it come from? Parents and grandparents and pastors and missionaries. and You know, you could go back all the way. We think of campgrounds and colleges, but let's think about who brought the gospel to the United States. Let's think about who translated scripture from its original language into English. Let's think about the early disciples and the apostles and the early church fathers and the martyrs who shed their blood rather than denounce their faith so that the torch could be passed from one generation to the next. All of those people and structures for over 2,000 years, part of why you're able to be here today, part of why it is that you're able to celebrate having Christ in your heart having forgiven your sins, so you might have certain hope of new life. None of us did anything to create those things that happened to invest in our lives. So I know you can probably guess what the next question I'm going to put up on the screen is. It's probably kind of one of those obvious questions, isn't it? I'll put it up on the screen anyway. What legacy will you leave? If we think in terms of all the people who've gone before and investing in us, people whose names we would not know, whose faces we would not recognize, perhaps it is also incumbent on us to think about how to invest in the next generation. The names we will never know and the faces we will never recognize, and yet someday they will sit in a service like this and give thanks to God for the people who have gone before. 
The psalmist has something to say about this, leaving a legacy for the next generation. Would you allow me to read the first seven verses of Psalm 78 for you? Hear the word of the Lord. My people, hear my instruction. Listen to what I say. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak mysteries from the past, things we have heard and known that our fathers have passed down to us. I'm going to kind of interrupt this a couple times along the way. We're going to count generations in Psalm 78, okay? The things we have heard and known that our fathers, there's generation one, have passed down to us, generation two. We must not hide them from their children, maybe generation three, but must tell a future generation, that's either three or four now, the praises of the Lord, His might and the wonderful works He has performed. He established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, going back to generation one, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that's us, generation two, so that a future generation, there's three children yet to be born, either three or four, might know. They were to rise and tell their children for maybe five generations, so they might put their confidence in God. And not forget God's works, but keep His commands. I started with a picture of four generations of Twitchells. You know, I only knew two of those men in that photograph. I didn't know the other two. They weren't still living when I was born. But they're part of my story. The psalmist says maybe four, maybe five generations, we're responsible to tell the next generation the praises of the Lord so that those children can rise and tell their children people who we did not know who invested in us, so that we might also then invest in those that we would not know. But the psalmist uses this word, must. We must tell a future generation the praises of the Lord. This is what the people of God do. This is a mandate to us, that we are commanded to not only tell our peers and our contemporaries and our co-workers and our neighbors, but to pass this message along from one generation to the next. Now, I don't know exactly how the ancient Israelites did this. Uh, I've got some ideas. I've thought about this a little bit. Uh, Certainly they taught their children, and we think of the way that Scripture was passed down from one generation to the next, often first memorized and passed down orally until somebody was able to write it down on parchment and then copy it and pass those things along. By the time Jesus walked on the earth, the, the children attended what we called synagogue schools. Now, I used to think... When I was growing up, I thought synagogue school was just like Sunday school, only they did it on Saturday. And uh, that was kind of what I thought synagogue school was. And it was a revelation to me when at some point I realized synagogue school was school. That's what they did all week long. And every child for the first few years would do that until the girls were kind of sent home to learn some of the girl things that they did in that very patriarchal society that they had back then. And the boys continued to learn. And then at some point, the boys who weren't so bright, they, uh, well, they went home and learned the family trade, maybe fishing or carpentry or something else. But the boys who really got this, they would continue through synagogue school through all of their early years until a rabbi would come and take them under their tutelage. But those kids, they were... They learned Scripture better than probably any pastor I've ever met today knew Scripture. They learned what we call the first five books, the Torah. They learned it memorized, word for word. They'd play this little game. You know, we go out to recess and play tetherball or foursquare, but they go play this little game where one of them would quote a sentence from Scripture to the other one, and the other one would have to quote the next verse to them. But if he really wanted to win the game, he wouldn't only quote the next verse, he would quote the verse that had come immediately 
before. See, these children knew Scripture quite literally forwards and backwards. And the ancient Israelites did another thing too. They built monuments to what God had done. Great giant standing stones or altars of the things that God had done. Whenever you read in Scripture of a great encounter with God's people, you often see that afterwards they established a a rock or an altar, named a tree or a well. And this was a, a moment they could hang on to, a place they could point to. And one of those was at the Jordan River. Remember God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness. And of course their disobedience caused them to wander in the wilderness for quite some time. But eventually they made it to the banks of the Jordan River. And the night before they're ready to cross, God says to Joshua, now in the morning... You're going to have the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant and as they go into the water, the water will dry up and I'll do a new miracle for this generation and you'll cross through on dry ground into the promised land. He says, I want you to take 12 men, one man from each tribe and have them pick up a rock. Now this is where I start imagining a little bit. Is it okay if I imagine things a little bit? This is the way I imagine it. Is If you've got 12 tribes... And Joshua goes and picks 12 men, one from each tribe, and says, pick up a rock on your way through the river. I think they're going to pick up the biggest rock they think they can carry, right? I think these guys are going to be pretty competitive, and they're going to scope out the biggest rocks, and they're going to try to muckle onto those things and pick them up, and they're going to carry these rocks across into the promised land. And God says, I want you to set them up, and here's why. Because one day your children and your children's children will see these rocks, and they will ask, What happened here? And when they do, you can once again tell them the great and wonderful praises of the Lord, what God did for you.